Hey, good morning. Oh, that was good. Good, good, good. Okay, that's it. Hey, my name's RD, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Door Creek, and uh, I have been over in the chapel for the past few weeks uh, with uh, that crew over there, and I'm obviously here preaching today, so I'm here. But uh, the last few weeks, I've had multiple people uh, come up to me, and this has been kind of funny and kind of awkward, and be like, hey, RD, how are you? And uh, you're, you're, looking, you're looking well, you're looking fit, you're, look, you're looking healthy, like, what's going on? Been working out, been, are the girls sleeping more? And I'm like, well, actually, I, I've been, you know, I've actually been really sick, and, and uh, that's what it is. And they're like, oh, oh, like, you had the flu? It's like, no, oh, like, they're going to make me say what I had. What, what, what was your, it's like, well, I had a, a hand, foot, mouth disease, Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. All right. God bless you. See you. Sit on the other side of the, the chapel. And um, yeah, so the, uh, one, probably the worst named disease of all time is called hand, foot, mouth. And about 99% of people who get it are under the age of five. So I'm finally in the 1% and it's with my um, immune system, which uh, is not good. So you get the flu for a few days and then you get blisters on your, you guessed it, hands, feet. And mouth, and so I had blisters all over my throat, right? So I couldn't talk, and so I couldn't eat, and so great for weight loss, okay? Great for that nine pounds in just a few days. So if you're praying, God, help me in this fall lose some weight, let me recommend hand, foot, mouth. <laughs> this is better than working out or eating right. Just don't eat. Just have this, and then you recover, and uh, it is, <laughs> oh gosh. So I'm finally better and here, and the little rascals who gave this wonderful disease to me are my own, my own children. They, they, yeah, they got it, and then they thought, Dad is getting, just he needs to be put back in his place, and so let's give this gift to our father. And so my daughters, Maisie and Camille, who will be nine months old next week, uh, gave it to me, and I had it, and I thought I'd bring a picture of the disease carriers so you could see them. I know. No, 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 no. These girls... <laughs> Made me suffer for a week, though they are cute. So Camille is on the left, and Maisie's on the right, and that's the pumpkin patch. And it uh, looks like Maisie's trying to eat something, uh, you know, trying all, they're just, all they do is try and find ways to kill themselves. That's like what they, and all you're doing is preventing that from happening all the time. Now they're crawling, one of them only backwards, one of them forwards, so it's like, it's always, you just never know. Um, and so, yeah, there'll be nine months next week, and uh, my wife and I, when we go on walks now in uh, Monona, we start doing something that, you know, is very unhealthy, but just as fun, like project on their life, right, what would they become based on their personalities, because it's been great with twins, and if you have multiple kids, you know they can be very different. It's just crazy how God wires personalities into that. And so now having twins, though, you're like, so much of that is the same. They're identical twins, born three minutes apart. And obviously for the first few months, they're the same. There's not much lot personality there. They're just taking everything from you those first few months. And then the last few months where their personalities have grown, and they're actually very different just in the past little bit. And so the firstborn, Maisie, is, Emily and I call her like the court jester because she is just hilarious and funny, and we'll just catch her like laughing at inanimate objects. I mean, not even people. Like you're looking at her, she's laughing, and you're like, what? what are you laughing at? And it's just like the fireplace. And she just thinks it's hilarious. And we're like, you are so happy. You wake her up in the morning. Right? By that, I mean she wakes you up in the morning. And we get her, and she's just happy to be alive. She loves it. She's laughing. She's just, I mean, just everything about life, she's full of it. 
She's just full of life. And so we're like, what do you think she'll be one day? What do you think she'll do one day? This personality, if it keeps growing and developing this bubbly personality, what will that lead her? What will become of her? And then you have Camille, the younger sister, who is just the queen of the stare down. I mean, I am doing all, I'm doing like a full Broadway routine in front of her. And she's like, is that it? Right. Is that, is there no more you want to give? And just like staring at you. And Macy's over there like cracking a rib. She's laughing so hard. And Camille's just like, I can't believe I'm in this family. I can't, I cannot believe that I'm, Lord, I cannot believe it, right? And so already, like, their personality, so maybe Camille, will she be like something very serious in life? Will she always have this personality? And um, so to help you kind of see this difference, I brought a video that I think you'll be able to tell the difference between the girls pretty quickly in their personalities. <laughs> I know, I know. That's it, right? That is, that is them in a, in a nutshell. That went on for longer. I had to cut the video because, you know, I, don't, I can't top that. So we should just pray and go home because that. And so you're asking, man, what's going what's gonna to become of them? And as parents, we want all these great, great things for them. You know, if you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or, right, you care at all about the next generation, you're wondering, God, what's going to happen? You know, and it's been great. Now I'm just old enough to kind of see some kids that not even when they were very small who are now middle school, high school. And it's been fun to see them when they were a baby and then see them grow up and see what they're doing now, right? Isn't it fun? I remember when you were a baby and now you're going to college. Now you're doing this to see them grow up and see the passions that God's given them. What's become of them? And that's a question that kind of hangs over not just children, but all of our lives. What is going to become of us? What are we going to make of our lives? And that's the question that hangs over Luke chapter 1. It's a question of what is going to become of this baby? What's going to become of this child? And we're going to look at this today from the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have the scriptures with you, turn there. Luke chapter 1. We're continuing our week-by-week look at the Gospel of Luke, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're continuing with the story. And this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 1, picking up in verse 57. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise a child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. So remember from the past few weeks, we have Zechariah who gets the the word from the Lord from the angel Gabriel that you're going to have a son, you and Elizabeth, in your very old age. And he's like, okay, maybe. And like most people in the scriptures, doubts the will and the promise of God to come true. And so Gabriel's like, okay, 
we're going to shut your mouth until it happens, right? We're going to do this, and you're going to see the provision of God come true. And so fast forward into the future, and this day has finally come. We have John the baby Baptist. He comes out with Elizabeth, and they're like, okay, we're going to name him after dad, right? We're going to name him after father. He's going to be Zechariah number two, and we're going to continue down the line. And Elizabeth is like, no, his name is actually going to be John. His name's going to be John. And they're like, Okay, sure, Elizabeth, thanks for your thoughts. Let's go to dad. Let's ask him what he, what he wants. And so they make signs to him. And some scholars think that not only was Zechariah, um, could he not talk, but he could not hear, right? And so they made signs to him to try and communicate with him. And so he grabs a writing tablet, which I just imagine this like in slow motion, right? They're like staring at him. What's he going to say? He grabs this writing tablet and he starts to write on it. And they're like, what is he writing? Okay. He didn't write in English, but if he did, the first letter was not going to be Z, right? He's going to write John, J-O-H-N. That's it. So you spell John. He writes John and they're like, what? John? And after he does that, his tongue gets freed. And the first thing he does is he prays God, thanking God for what he has done, right? Gratitude is the right response to the faithfulness of God. Christians should be a very grateful people that gratitude should mark us because of who God is. And so he begins praising God and thanking God for what God has done has come true. He has his son is right there. He calls him John in accordance with the will of God. But still the people are like, this does not make sense. What is up with this child? There's something different, unique about him. And so the text continues, verse 65. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, here's the question, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with them. Whenever you see a question in the scriptures, that's a great place to spend a lot of time studying. What is this child going to be? What is going to mark his life? His name is John, and that is different than what we thought. And so you have all the countryside, all the neighbors, like a birth maybe in your family, and everyone's talking about it because it's so exciting. But this one is exciting, but also like, what's going on here? This is not what we expected to happen. What is God doing here? What is going on here? What is going to become of this child's life? And the way in which that that you or I answer that question about our own children, about our grandchildren, about the next generation, informs then how we live our life. What, What is going to become of our children? What's going to become of our grandchildren? What's going to become of the next generation? And we all have an answer to that. That informs how we raise kids, right? And what we think is good and best for children. And in our culture, uh, we've kind of had children become this, this thing where um, they're doing a thousand things. And, and what we say to children now is that your purpose in life is found ultimately right in you. Right? You are your own purpose. And if you find something that makes you happy and makes you fulfilled, then that's great and that's awesome and that's what you need to do. Whatever makes you happy, you go and, and do that. And that will fulfill you and that will make you happy. And in addition to that, we kind of have children uh, who are thinking that their purpose in life is through what they achieve in academics, 
in, in music, in sports, right? And so we have, I mean, kids now are the busiest they've ever been, right? How, parents, how many of you are just crazy busy with your life, moving your kids, grandkids, just other kids that you're picking up, right? To go to soccer, to go to music, to go to band camp, um, to go all these recreational activities that we put kids into. Why? Yes, part of it's for their enjoyment, even though as you suffer, but part of it so that whatever they're doing when they're in first grade, second grade, sixth grade, 10th grade, that one day they could get into a good school, right? One day they could get a good job. Maybe they'll get a master's degree. Maybe they'll marry the right person and then they'll have a right family. And then we'll just continue the cycle on and on and on. And I was reading in the New York Times and they talked about the, the next sport that needs to be at the Olympics and they called it competitive parenting, <laughs> Right? Are you a victim of competitive parenting? Yes, you are, right? I am I'm nine months old. I'm basically like judging other parents like, my kids are better. They're going to do more. They're nine months. They're already walking and talking, right? They're not. But there's part of me that wants to say that, right? When I see a baby who's nine months, who's more progressed than my girls, I'm like, there's something wrong. There's something. No, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. You just begin to compare against others, right? You have the mom who's like, Wait, what did, what did Susie's mom bring? She brought nut-free, allergy-free, organic cookies to school, and she made them in 30 minutes? Well, forget her. I'm going to make them in 15 minutes. That's what I'm going to do, and they're going to be even better cookies, right? And so we have parents that exist to compare the goodness and the ability of their parenting based on how other people are parenting, not comparing it to who God is and what God's called them to be, but what other parents are doing. And so you have exhausted parents child-centered marriages, and confused and broken kids who think their purpose in life is based on what they achieve or what they do. And that's where we are. And so people are answering the question, what's going to become of my child by saying it's found in the world or it's found inside of you. And yet look at the future generation that's coming and how broken it is. Well, the question that hangs over this text of Scripture is answered by God and by Zechariah. Right? The question that ends Luke, the first section here at the end of Luke, does not go unanswered, which is good news for you and for I, for all of us. Verse 66, everyone who heard this wondered about asking, what is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with them. Here comes the beginning of the answer. His father, Zechariah, steps forward and offers an answer. And by Zechariah, it's really God speaking through Zechariah. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is always a good sign that things are about to get crazy. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's filling you up. Something is about to happen. So this is from God. All of what he's about to say and proclaim over the life of his son is from the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through, said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him, serve God, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all of our days. Okay. So you're like, okay, well, he's answering the question, but there's nothing about John in those first few verses, right? Where's the four point plan for John, 
right? Here's what I want you to be. Here's what I want you to do. It's not there because Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, does not begin with John. He begins in the beginning with God. And he anchors the story of his son and his child in the greater story of who God is and what God is doing. Because if you begin with what is not eternal, everything is eventually going to break down, right? But Zechariah says, I want to start by praising God for who he is. I want to praise the God of Israel. And then he goes through and he says, God has visited us. God is coming to us in the person of Jesus. I I have seen that because of the birth of my son. God's going to redeem us. And then he he goes back and he mentions Father David. Well, great, 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 great grandfather David. And then even greater, greater, greater grandfather Abraham. And he references these great fathers of the faith. And he says, you promised these things to the family of God long ago, that one day you would make a people of your own possession who would fill the entire earth, a family, children of God, that would make much of God, that would love each other. You promised this in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and all that you have said, God, is now coming true. They didn't get to see all of it. I don't get to see all of it. None of us get to see all that God is doing. But God, from the beginning of history until the very end, is forming a people for his own possession to make much of him and to love each other as a family. This is the purpose of God. And so he's then anchoring the story of his son and his life in the greater, grander story of who God is and what God is doing. And that's something to get lost in. Not in just your own life and your own will. That'll suffocate you. (laughs) Because you're just here such a small time. Right? You and I are not the point God is the point. And so anchoring our life in what he has done is what it's about. And so he begins here and he says, God is doing all of these things. And why has God saved a people? Why has God rescued a people? Why did he form the nation of Israel? Why has he formed the church? Why has he rescued sinful people like this and made them his own? Well, the answer we also find here in the text, it's verse 74. Why? To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us, to allow us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Here's the 30,000 foot purpose of what God has done. He has not just saved you and reconciled you, though that is awesome to sit on the couch and wait to get beamed up to heaven. (laughs) Right? Oh, wait, you got 80 more years left on planet Earth? Just hang out, watch a lot of great TV. Right? Because one day the real party's coming in heaven. So just kind of hang out. There's really nothing for you to do here because the work here is over, right? No. It, it says here God rescued a people to enable us to serve him without fear. God saves us so that we can serve him. We are saved by God to serve the God that saves us. We do not serve God to earn salvation. We do not work for God to earn the work of God. It's already given to us. God gives it to us. And he says, I want a people who will serve me not in fear, not worrying about what I think about them like every other religion teaches, always uncertainty. They will know. They will know that I love them, that I care for them, that I have a plan and purpose for them. That's why I rescue them first and ask them to serve me second. So they would always know the affection that I have for them and the purpose that I have for them, that they would serve me without fear but with peace and with certainty, and with confidence, that they would be children who love their father and don't doubt the love that their father has for them. 
And not just that they would serve without fear, but they would serve with holiness, set apartness, that we as a church would be a people distinct from the world. That whatever it is that you're doing in a job, in a profession, in your marriage, as a student, that you would actually be set apart from the world. Not looking back at the world saying how evil it is, but just saying, I want to live differently. Not because I'm better, but because Jesus is better. And I want to worship and follow him. Because I make just as much mistakes as any non-Christian does. But the beauty of the gospel is I already know that. (laughs) It's wired into the gospel, failure and messing up. So I'm covered. Right? We'd serve him in holiness and in righteousness. And ultimately a righteousness that's given to us by Jesus. But God's creating a unique people, that that the people of Israel are a family, that we as the church are a unique family that resembles our father, that looks like our father, right? And so this is the the great big purpose that Zechariah is anchoring his son's story. And he's like, son, this is what God's been doing from the very beginning. And you get to play a role in what he's doing going forward. Okay, so let's zoom in even further. Let's land the plane and let's see what the purpose of John is. Get more specific. Verse 76. And you, so he finally starts talking about his son. You're like, is he ever going to mention his son? And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So yes, John has a very specific purpose in life. He's going to prepare the way for Jesus. He's the last prophet before Jesus comes. In fact, chapter 2 begins with the birth of Jesus. He's the final prophet. And so he has a unique mission. He's going to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. He's going to talk about the forgiveness of sins that comes only through Jesus. That is his mission. That is his purpose. But is his purpose, while specific in some ways to him, that much different from what God is calling you and I to? Right? He's a prophet of the Most High who is proclaiming who God is and saying there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus alone. Is that a lot different from what God's calling you or I to? The answer is no, right? So instead of saying a prophet of the Most High, we we can say as as children that you and I are daughters of the Most High. So we can read it this way as a a mission statement for us as the children of God. And you, my child, you, me, will be called a daughter or a son of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people, all people, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And so the mission that John has, yes, has some uniqueness to it that we do not share. But in the greater scheme, what, what Zechariah is praying for his son, as fathers, as grandfathers, as uncles, as aunts, we want to be praying for our own children, that they could be sons and daughters and people who proclaim the forgiveness of Jesus, who make much of Jesus with the way in which they live their life, that they would prepare the way for the way that is coming into the world, right? That they would prepare the way and then get out of the way and be like, I'm not the way. The way is coming. And that should mark all of our lives, right? We don't know the exact specifics of it, right? God does not give you an 88 bullet point plan for your life, right? But he's saying, hey, generally this is what you should do. And if you become a plumber or a preacher um, or or an architect or a mom or a dad, that doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter as much what you do as why you do it and who you do it for. 
right? We can get crazy about what's God's will for my life. Should I do this? Should I do that? And I'm like, I don't know. It, it doesn't say. Here, here's I know what God longs for you to serve him without fear, to make much of Jesus. And however he's wired you and given you passions, do that. Do that. And it's okay, right? It's the motivation for your serving God that's the, the important part. Not just what you do, that is important, but it's why you're doing what you do that matters. And this is what we should teach our children. Not just do this, but why. Let me illustrate it with this example from the Old Testament. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It'll be on the screen. If you want to turn there, you're always welcome to. Verse 20. This is, um, I just love this verse because it's just so real. Verse 20, chapter 6. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? I love that. Because basically, it's children are not different in the Old Testament. (laughs) Imagine your son or daughter comes up to you, the writer's saying, and he says, they basically go, why? (laughs) I don't think any parents ever heard that, right? (laughs) You think, you guys have a lot of rules? How many rules do the children of Israel have to follow? Don't touch this. Don't eat this. Don't do this. Don't go over there. You are unique people. Be holy. And so you've got kids who are eventually going to come up to mom and dad and say, why all these rules? They're stupid, right? They don't make me happy. I don't like them. Why do I have to follow them? I don't get it. And here's the answer. And I think it's helpful for us as well. The writer says, tell tell your son, tell your daughter this. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord, of, the Lord set miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. I always have loved that because what the writer is saying here is he's saying, when your son or your daughter or anyone in the community of God asks you, why should we follow all the rules? Do not start with, you should follow all the rules because that's what God said. He said, you should follow all the rules because God rescued us. Because you love the rule maker. Right? Do you see his first response is, tell them we were slaves and God rescued us. And so the gospel event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. Obviously, the gospel event in the New Testament is the cross. And so as we're raising children, grandchildren, as we're, we're working with kids in any capacity, what we want to say is follow the rules and follow God because he's worthy of being followed, because he's great and glorious and majestic and awesome and mighty, and he saved us, and he forgave us, and he brought us into a family. He did all this for us. That's why we follow him. That's why we follow him. So we begin like Zechariah does with the beginning, with what he has done for us, not what we do for him. And so we anchor our faith in the reality of who God is. And we get lost in his greatness and grandness. And we say, I long to follow him. I want to follow him. I don't get all these rules all the time. Sometimes they do seem maybe like they don't make the most sense, but I trust the God behind the rules. And I know that he has my best in his mind, in his heart. And so if we're teaching our children just do and don't, we're going to raise up moralistic, 
monsters <laughs> who end up leaving the church because all they thought church was or God was was this policeman in the sky who just buzzed them when they went too fast instead of, man, let's paint a picture of the greatness of God, the beauty of the gospel. And yes, that drives obedience. Obey your parents is a command of the scripture. But anchor that in obeying the ultimate father first. That's what's happening here. The motivation is so very important. This is what's going on here. The purpose of John's life is to make much of Jesus. In fact, this is what happens. It's actually John's life is sandwiched in between the reality of what God has done and what God is going to do. John's ministry exists because of this. This is the end of Luke chapter 1 here. John's ministry exists because of this. Verse 77, it says about John, you you give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins and the entire purpose of your life exists because of this. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. You exist, your purpose exists to be found in the purpose of God, right? This is what he says here, because they're talking about Jesus. Verses 78 and 79 are about Jesus who is about to come, that John, your life should be hidden in God. Your life should be wrapped up in God because of the tender mercy of God, because of the amazing love of God. There is one coming who is far greater than you, and you want to prepare the way for him. And the purpose of your life is to be caught up in the purpose of God. And Zechariah is praying this over his son. He's saying, he's answering the question. He's saying, this is what I long for my child to become. This is what I long for my boy to become part of, to be lost in the purpose of God, to make much of Jesus. Whatever it is that he does, I don't care what he does. I care who he does it for. And so hanging over all of the scripture is this question that God asks of all of, the, all of us. What is going to become of the children? Right? What is going to become of the kids downstairs? What is going to become of your own biological children? What's going to become of your adopted children? What's going to become of the children on the north side that we're trying to love and serve in the achievement gap? What's going to become of the forgotten children of our city? What's going to become of the children around the world who are dying and being abused? What's going to become of children in Africa? Thousands and thousands who are dying every day because of malnutrition and war. What's going to become of the children just raised in war-torn places like Iraq and Syria and Israel? What's going to become of those children? What's going to become of the children right now who are, have no parents, who are in broken homes, who have no purpose for their life? They, they don't think, what's going to become of those children? And God says the church has to show up with an answer to that question. The church has to show up and say, we have an answer to that question. We want to provide an answer. We want to shape the answer to that question in our culture. So that children know that they're valued and they're loved. They're created in God's image. Right? And whether you have children or not, it doesn't matter. Because in the kingdom of God, everybody's on the field. There are no sidelines in the kingdom of God. Everybody is on varsity. Some of you are like, finally, (laughs) I made it. (laughs) I've been trying my whole life. 
I can finally get a varsity letter jacket, right? God, I always wanted one of those. It's fine. I'm good. I'm good. You are, can finally be, right, on the varsity team because the second that God calls you, you're a child. And you remain a child your whole life. We are not the adults of the kingdom. We're not the grandparents of the kingdom. We're not the stepchildren of the kingdom. We're not the grandchildren of the kingdom. We're the children of the kingdom of God. And God says that us as the children of God have a responsibility for all of God's children, all of the children and the teenagers of this world. How are you going to live a life that answers that question for the glory of Jesus? All right, how is that going to happen? What does that look like? What do you want most for your child? What do you want most for your grandchild? What do you want most for the next generation? I, I, I'm a, nine months old. I already have all these dreams for my girls, right? I want them, good intentions, right? I want them to be happy. I want them to get married. And by that, I mean never get married and live in my basement and wear sweatpants forever in the fortress that I'm building currently. <laughs> that's, what, that's what deep down I want right? I want them to be successful. I want them to get good jobs. I want them to be fulfilled. I want all of these things for them. But ultimately what I want is that they would be ferocious women of God who do not find their identity in anything but Jesus. And if they can play an instrument or play a sport, great. And if not, who cares? Because their identity is not found in what they do, but in whose they are. And they would know that. They would live in that reality, They would not hear the voices of the enemy or the world that says your value is found in what you do or in who you love or anything that you do. It's found in Jesus and what he says about you, right? Because joy, the center of joy is not found in the job. It's not found in a position. It's found in the person. It's found in Jesus, And whether you're single or newly married or you've been married a long time, you have kids, you've got 25 kids, it it doesn't matter. (laughs) Parents, grandparents, we have to live out of the security of our identity in God. Otherwise, our children are going to be very confused about what should I be living for. And over and over again, I know that I'm going to have to push myself back and say, well, you need to be successful, you need to do this, but I don't want to confuse cultural definitions of success with biblical definitions of success. Because when you start to do that, things are going to get very scary for the next generation. Because they're going to keep having to measure up to some standard that keeps shifting. Instead of saying, you're loved by God, Maisie, right? You are loved by God, Camille. And whenever you do, my hands are open because listen to me, whatever my best is for my girls, right? God's best is better, right? God's best is better. And so you have open hands. And so nine months old and right, I'm, I'm bathing them, which has now become basically survive from drowning time in the tub because they're moving so fast. And I, it's just the time when I feel like God connects with me to just pray for them and think about them because they're just so oblivious to me, right? And they're just playing with their toys and trying to eat the faucet and just all these things. And I just have that moment where I'm like, God, I want so much for them, but ultimately what I want for them is you. Help me be a parent. Help my wife and I have a marriage that just says you're the most important thing for them because it's really, really hard <laughs> to do that, right? 
And let me just encourage you, give you some grace here. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent who has a child right now that's very prodigal and you've said, I've done all these things, I've done all this stuff, and I'm just feeling more guilty because my kid's not lining up like this, let me just give you grace and say it's every person's responsibility to embrace the promises of God. There's no magic formula. I can tell you being engaged and being involved is far better than not being engaged and involved as a parent. But don't beat yourself up or give yourself a ton of guilt if your child or your grandchild is going prodigal right now. Keep praying, come home. Keep living in the reality, praying, God, would you help them come home? We don't need to have this guilt-based parenting that says, well, you didn't do this, and that's why your kid did that. Who knows why? Who knows why? What do you want most for your child? Here's how I'll close with this scripture. Psalm 78, it'll be on the screen. This is what I think God longs for, the children of God. Psalm 78. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things from of old. Things what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation what? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders that he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, that they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God. They would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. That sounds like a mission statement right there. Verse 7 right there. That the children, the next generation, that what we long for them most is this. They would put their trust in God. I mean real trust. Real trust in God. Open hands to the world. Raising children who are ferocious men and women of God. Ready to go anywhere for the kingdom. Not risk averse but trusting in God. They would trust in the Lord. They would not forget the Lord, but remember him. They would remember who God is and what God has done. And finally, that they would keep his commands. They would follow him as a father. And so the prayer, right, for my girls is that they would love the God of their father, of their grandfather. And and years from now, the McClanagan name would be known as a name that loved Jesus. And maybe for you, you're the first person in your family tree that's, that's been in a relationship with Jesus and the family tree is starting anew right now. And you've had decades, centuries of pain and misery. God can redeem that tree. Because, right, parenting basically is about having your child become increasingly independent, right? Isn't that the purpose? Already, like, our girls are starting to hold their bottle. And I'm like, no. No, you're holding your, you don't need me as much anymore. But the point is that they become more independent throughout the course of their life. That they could stand on their own two feet and and get a job and and do all these things for themselves. That's how the parent-child relationship works. You become increasingly independent. But the God-child relationship works just the opposite. Where throughout our lives, we become increasingly dependent on God. And so the point of raising the next generation, the point of being a parent is transferring the dependence that people have on you so that they would depend on God for all things. 
They would depend on him and him alone. And so the answer to the question, what is to become of this child? You and I have a role to play. And I pray it would be rooted in who God is, in what God has done, and in the purpose of God for their life. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful and thankful to you for your word that you say, as you say in the scripture, let the little children come to me for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so I pray that we would be people who in our time, in our culture, in our city, answer the question, what is to become of these children with the good news of your son, Jesus? The rising sun that has visited us to proclaim good news. Father, help all of us, adults, grandparents, parents, single people, young Marys, find our identity in Jesus and live out of that reality in all that we do, knowing that we are daughters and sons of the Most High with a purpose that comes from God. Father, we love you. We're grateful that you allow us to call us Father, call you our Father. Help us be children who long to love their Father evermore until we see you face to face and are in your arms. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all the Lord's people said, Amen.